The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. There's a first mover resistance. The world's not short of technology to stop global heating. The world's not short of capital to stop global heating. The world's short of character, character of its business and industry leaders. Fortescue's had its own lap of that. I mean, we did not keep all the executives who wanted to stick with fossil fuels. I mean, many upped and left. I warned the markets. That was Andrew Forrest, executive chairman of Fortescue, talking to me ahead of the COP28 summit about the challenges of greening his company. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with business people, policymakers, and experts around the world. I'm Una Galani, Asia editor of Reuters Commentary. Andrew Forrest is the billionaire founder of Fortescue, the world's fourth largest iron ore miner. He joins me to talk about the need for policy changes to stimulate green growth and why every country needs an answer to America's Inflation Reduction Act. We recorded this podcast before the Australian federal government more than tripled its support for building renewable energy and storage. Welcome, Andrew. I'm excited to have you on the podcast. Yuna, thank you for having me. Well, we recently met in Mumbai and you were at the time on part of a global road trip to establish scientific consensus for lethal humidity. What's the bigger purpose here? Tell us a little bit about where you've been. Okay, so, I mean, you you and I felt some of the bigger purpose when we were in Mumbai, like the cities in China I was just at previously, and some days they become quite unlivable. That's all to do with the particulates and pollution and everything we're pouring into the air. So a simple bottom line, our world, as we know it, is going to come to a grinding economic and hopefully not organic stop um, if we don't arrest global warming or global heating. Um, And uh, we have a science which is bulletproof. It's been agreed to by scientists all over the world from the greatest institutions and universities alike, which demonstrates that people, it's observing science, you know, it's not predictive, it's observing um, that people are dying as we speak, that the lethality, the danger of humidity, not heat, is massively misunderstood by the marketplace. Um, and people just simply don't understand that their mammal, their mammal organic bodies can withstand heat, which is why, you know, summer's days aren't so bad. You know, let's get down the beach. But you put humidity in that and you'll be going down the beach and dying. So that's what people aren't getting. And as humidity uh, comes in at a rate of two to three times quicker than temperature, so it's rising in its danger several times faster, then we're getting that message out saying, actually, the time for talking about doing it later, 2050, 2040, that's over. We have to act immediately now because the death is upon us now. It's kind of interesting because you have focused your global tour. I think it's taking you to China, to India, to America. I mean, you focused it on the scientific community and the research community instead of going to sort of lobby business and politicians like more directly. Why is that? Uh, because they are stage two. The the businesses and the politicians are all stage two. What I'm doing with stage one is getting the global scientific community, the great academies, the great institutions could be NASA in the United States or CSIRO in Australia, Institute of Technologies in India, Xinhua in China, it doesn't matter, Oxford, Cambridge in Britain, 
um, Delft in the Netherlands, just but getting their universities completely and their academic institutions, their great atmospheric and climate research institutions, all locked in. So when leaders of business and leaders of, of politics, policymakers, turn to their own experts for advice on this, or as get me a way to wriggle out of it, get me a way to greenwash my way out of it, get me a way to deny that this is true so I can just continue making no decisions and just speaking in platitudes and not in action, they'll turn to those same institutions, which are all now part of the Leaf Humidity Global Council. They've all met with me. They've all verified the science. They all have even better science than I do, which proves the point I've just made to their leaders when their leaders turn to them. I think one of the interesting things about your campaign is obviously there is a lot of scepticism in the market. People look at you and they say, OK, and you call yourself a polluter, a carbon emitter, and you say that people should hold you to account. But people really want to people think, you know, what is what is this guy doing? What's really driven him to sacrifice so much time to go around campaigning for, you know, awareness about lethal humidity? Look, time is obviously it. You've, you've just nailed it. Um, we all burn in the fire of time. Uh, that is, that's all of our most pre precious commodity. I've put a red pen through my entire diary um, to get this message out because quite simply, I am a leader and if I can't, um, and, a, and a father, and if I can't um, protect my family or my shareholders or my citizens, then I'm failing in my first and really only ever most important duty, and that's the welfare protection and, and life of my citizens, so uh, of my voters, of my shareholders, of my of my kids and family. So that's motivated me, and I'm saying to leaders all over the world, that is your primary responsibility as well. Yes, economics and everything is all, is all very fine, but if you destroy their lives, you're actually wasting your time on everything else. So I've gone straight to the university, straight to the great institutions to make sure that the science is bulletproof, scientific opinion or scientific facts will not be questioned. They'll be questioned by bots, you know, AI bots driven by the fossil fuel sector, or they'll get people on the payroll or come out on, on the fossil fuel payroll and say, oh, no, he's over-dramatising. And I'll just say to any of those people, come with me to the morgues, come with me to the hospitals. Let's not sit around arguing whether or not you're right or right or wrong or I'm right or wrong. Let's just go and see the people who have and are dying and then let's have a discussion because the time for arguments is over. Yeah, and, you know, I think, you know, you and I met in Mumbai at the time the air quality was really bad and, you know, I think that, you know, places like that are on the front line. They don't really need a lot of convincing that problems like lethal humidity exist but in other parts of the world maybe they do i mean at the at the core of your campaign you have some sort of specific things you're trying to push other people to do which is to adopt real zero targets rather than net zero ones and you're also advocating for a change in economic policy that will unleash green growth why do you think that we need a change in policy okay so we need a change in policy, otherwise we're going to lead to the extinction of the human race, you know. I mean, so, I mean, if, if I have to be really blunt as a scientist or really blunt as an industrialist, really blunt as a father and a businessman, we need a change in economic policy because it's the only thing which is driving us into extinction, our own economic policies. And so that's 
unit is why. Um, and uh, to drive economic policy, you have to have absolute fact on your side, and then you must get through the hideous lobbying power of a $7 trillion subsidised industry, which, oh, makes at least that much. That's fancy. They, we should make that much. That's the subsidies we're swallowing. So they're taking from mums and dads, boys and girls all over the world, these massive subsidies and turning it into weapons to cook those boys and girls. And, you know, people just aren't getting the simplicity of that that we're subsidising our own extinction by subsidising the fossil fuel sector. I'm saying, actually, we're smarter than that. You know, if it's now beyond any possible doubt, even to some moron who would like to argue with me that actually, when I say, well, take me to, when they say, okay, I'll go to the morgues. And I said, good, let's, um, um, my plane's leaving tomorrow, get on it. And they say, oh, well, actually, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to see dead people. Um, actually, I want to um, I want to uh, tell you that Andrew, this is uh, this is actually uh, in the in the great prophecies of the Holy Text. And I've said, well, hang on, mate. I happen to be a student of the Holy Text. Where is that? You know, where is it in in Yiddish? Where is it in uh, the Quran? In the supporting great um, philosophies of the Quran? Where is it in the Old and New? It's not there. So actually, what you're telling me is that you just want to prosecute your short-term political self-interest and keep the system as it is. And that system is going to destroy it. So I'm saying to them, economic policies must change. We've, you know, it's it's pretty brain dead, you know. I mean, let's stop subsidising fossil fuels and start subsidising what's going to save the planet. So you, you mentioned subsidies. And I think in the past you said that the US Inflation Reduction Act has changed everything. What exactly do you think the Inflation Reduction Act has changed? Because initially, most countries around the world or the rest of the world saw this as a race to the bottom and not an opportunity. OK, so it isn't like that. Um, for instance, always trust what someone does um, slightly more. I mean, I think trust absolutely. Trust people generally, but trust people absolutely for what they do. So yesterday, only yesterday, um, we voted through a billion plus dollars in our board meeting of green energy projects. 800 million of that billion was into North America, projects which are now going to get built. Stage one, stage two, stage three will amount to tens of billions of dollars. Um, and, you know, that, that includes like a green hydrogen project, right? Uh, yeah, it's a, exactly, yeah. exactly. These these are projects which were not commercial before and are commercial now. So we're pushing the button, and uh, we've 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 gone from board decision into action with those projects. And they're commercial because of the IRA. They're commercial because all projects like solar and wind right now delivers the cheapest form of energy the world has ever known. Um, just puts fossil fuel into a pot. This only happened because governments had the gravitas, the intellect, to support getting solar panels subsidised and going, support getting wind farms subsidised and going. That's all we're saying now with all of green energy and particularly green hydrogen. And if people say, oh, we can't afford it, they are missing the absolute fundamental law of economics and that's the multiplier effect. If you bring into an economy something which produces way more money than it costs, employs people at a very large amount 
where they're currently not being employed at all because the industry doesn't exist, and further creates a higher standard of living through lowering the cost of living, then you've done your, your country a great favour. And that's what the IRA does. It repays itself every three to five years. And if people say, oh, yeah, but all the money's going there. Well, the reason for that, stupid, is because you don't have the same thing in your economy. The IRA has been the single biggest economic engine in North America. And if you want to put one in India, all of all the capital flow in there as well. If you want to put one in Britain or Australia or Africa, the capital flow in there as well, because there's almost infinite capital. When you talk about funding the fossil fuel business, you're talking billions of dollars. And there's lots of projects which are heavily subsidised by idiot taxpayers like me and you and every other the mum and dad subsidising our own extinction. Um, and so funnily enough, they're commercial. So there's heaps of money. But when you talk green energy and pushing companies and countries away from destroying themselves, then, you know, there's literally trillions of dollars available. And the reason why it's not being deployed is because it's not the project to deploy them on. They're, they need a hand to get commercial before they completely overtake the fossil fuel sector and literally save our lives. So we now just need to switch the incentives away from fossil fuel to green in order to get all these projects going. And, you know, I've had one bank say to me, I have two and a half trillion dollars, one bank, line of credit and capital available to help fossil fuel consuming companies go to non-fossil fuel consuming companies, but there's no projects. And that is the kind of economic engine which gets going just as easily in Britain, just as easily in India as it does in North America. I mean, in fact, I'd bet, I'd bet countries against North America for really driving innovation, even though North America is proudly claiming it's the most innovative country in the world. I've seen some of the best innovations come out of Africa, come out of India, come out of Europe, I mean, and of course, North America. But human genius is only confined to where people live. And if we put these multiplier investments into our economy, we stop subsidising fossil fuel, we start subsidising green, then you're going to get genius coming from everywhere and investments coming from everywhere into your economy. That investment will pay itself every three to five years. That's an excellent investment. You can't get investments like that. Do you think, I mean, subsidies are obviously like a tricky subject, particularly at the moment when a lot of governments around the world, including the US, face high deficits. I mean, do you think it's possible to make the transition without subsidies? Like if I look at Fortescue, you know, you're doing it, you're aiming for real zero, not net zero in your scope one and your two emissions by 2030. You're transforming your fixed plant, trucks, trains and ships to operate on green fuel. You're starting green energy, hydrogen, ammonium projects around the world. Um, I've seen Indian companies rolling out some like really ambitious, you know, pumped hydro, renewable energy storage projects. I mean, if 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 you Fortescue can do it, and if some Indian companies can do it without subsidies, why do we why do we need them at all? Uh, because <clears throat> we're not all born equal. We're not all born. I mean, we are born equal under God, but we're not born with the same character, same intelligence, same you know everything. We don't need just one or two companies to do it. You know, in, in a sovereign sense, that's almost greenwashing. We need the entire economy to go and do it. And companies who wake up in the morning and they just want to 
pay their staff, maybe get a return out to shareholders and exist, they're not going to take these big bets. Um, and that's fair enough because, you know, they just want to get to tomorrow, let alone take a big bet on the future. So to get those companies going, you've got to have them say, actually, it's in my staff's best interest, it's in my shareholders' best interest that I go green, that I stop burning fossil fuel because I'm, I've got a subsidy on a new fuel which is going to drive massive investment into my country. It's going to offer way more jobs to my kids than they'll ever get from the fossil fuel sector. So, oh, maybe I'll do this. So it's to everyone. And when I hear that argument saying, well, if one or two companies can, can, can do it, so can the whole world, I've just got to say, well, you haven't been around the whole world, mate, because we've, we've got to actually get everyone doing it, not just a couple. So one of the things we've, I've noticed is that actually the, the sort of reaction to the IRA has sort of been changing. It's, it's evolving. I think a lot of countries and governments seem to be coming around to the notion that they might need some answer to what the US is doing for their own good. So I think in the EU, they've sort of, they're sort of playing with a few schemes. Japan has been doing a bit. In Australia, there has been discussion about how to respond to the IRA and what sort of the response that should be. I mean, how do you think an Australian response to the IRA should shape up? Because the economy in Australia is very different to the American economy, right? It's, it's low on manufacturing, its exports are not particularly complex. True, but what it, I mean, every single Australian and every single Australian politician says, we want to increase Australian manufacturing. We don't like the fact that a manufacturing has gone, gone offshore and you've got companies like mine which are heavily investing in Australian manufacturing with Cobra, with RM Williams, with others, you know. Um, so we're walking the talk, but every single politician you speak to says, I want to bring home manufacturing. Well, great. Put an IRA in your economy. And then you say, well, I want to increase employment. Say, great, put an IRA into your economy. And then say, well, actually, I want to get generate way more taxes than I ever subsidised by a multiple. I said, great, put an IRA into your economy. I mean, if you want all of these things, and this, well, actually, I want to lower the cost of power and increase the standard of living so I get voted in. So, great. Put an IRA into your economy. It, it, we've got the good fortune of seeing what North America's done, and we can take the good and the bad. I'd probably drop out carbon sequestration because it's just a rot, just a, just, you know, a, a, a theory waiting for the next idiot to come along to believe it. And it has been like that for the last 50 years. You get your fingers burnt, then you don't touch it again, and along comes another idiot. But if you're the fossil fuel sector, you just look for the next idiot. And so I'd drop out carbon sequestration of the fossil fuel sector being any solution for anything. Um, but look, we all learn from their from their mistakes. Let's learn from their successes too. Their successes are that it's driven way more investment. The multiplier impact on that economy is looking like it's going to repay itself a lot quicker than the most optimistic treasury estimates, which are around three to five years. So because investment is multiple, right? So if you get a 10 or 15% rate of return or like 20% rate of return, you're going to keep on making it. doesn't matter if it's in India or if it's in Europe or if it's in North America or China. You're, you'll keep on attracting more and more capital. It's not like, oh, I've only got 100 bucks, so I'll put 90 into North American 
you know, 10 into Britain, it's not how it works. You just get another $100 for Britain, another $100 for India, another $100 for China, get another $100 for Africa. That's how it works. How confident are you uh, that Australia will sort of find its feet with a policy that is appropriate in, to, you know, to sort of lead the country forward on this transition? Look, I'm I'm not terribly close to Australia. You'll find that ironic, but I've only been in the country for a couple of days. I've been basically travelling for uh, four months um, all up. I've visited Australia a couple of times over that four or five months. Um, but so I've been out really focusing my energy on uh, North America, on China and on India, um, because these three great powers um, are the three greatest populations. They stand the most to lose from lethal humidity. Each one of them have massive subtropical belts, um, but they also have the most to win. And so I've focused hard in on these three economies to get them to agree to eliminate global warming the only way possible, and that's to change the economic policies we currently have, which is destroying the planet. Um, and so what is what is Australia going to do, Yuna, to, to answer your question and not uh, ever be accused of dodging anything? Um, I would say, Yuna, um, they're going to come through. Uh, I think that, um, that uh, they see that Australia is sun-drenched, wind-drenched, has all, all the... Um, sustainable energy in the world, but it's not capturing it. We have got structural high green electricity prices. We're not rolling out the massive um, transmission systems. We're not subsidising wind farms, solar farms. We're not subsidising green green hydrogen hard. And I, I'm confused about that because green hydrogen takes heaps of employment, heaps of technology, heaps of capital, everything which governments love, right, particularly employment. It's very employment intensive. So, um, you know, I think they're going to come through because they're basically saying we're going to um, miss the bus if we don't. Um, but right now we have structurally high electricity prices and that's led people like me to pause um, a massive and beautiful project in Queensland until I can sort that out. Um, and go ahead with projects um, in North America to have right on the edge of going a fabulous project in Brazil, a fabulous project, project in Norway, a fabulous project in Kenya. What do they all have in common? They have availability of cheap green electrons, which we can make um, fertilizer from, we can make ammonia from for ships, we can make hydrogen from for cars. I mean, we, you can do everything with it. Yeah, I think even your own politicians in Australia have said that there's like some 10,000 times more solar radiation each year uh, than Australia requires. And the sort of offshore wind potential that could exceed the capacity of the world's current coal-fired power stations. That just needs to be harnessed. Um, yeah, so I think, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the numbers are really compelling when you look at the sort of economic benefits, right? So people say that all in the IRA could spare $3 trillion in renewable energy technology investment and by 2050 encourage up to $11 trillion of total investment in infrastructure. That's a Goldman Sachs estimate. And that, you know, you could get almost 1.5 million new jobs in America by 2030. So there's, you know, the numbers are like really, really exciting. But then where does this all leave countries... Yeah, no that don't have that kind of funding, right? So where does it leave someone like India or 
Africa, you know, countries that can't afford to roll out the IRA? How do we ensure that they're not left behind? That's it's that's just so untrue. I mean, it's just so untrue. Let's just unpack that. So we get a $3 subsidy for an industry which doesn't yet exist. Okay, so we're literally giving away benefit, partial benefit from a greater benefit we get when it does it when it does exist. We're not giving a bean out now. I mean, to say we can't afford it is simply a horrifying lack of logic. Basically, India or any country, you know, I've got a little island off here called Rottnest Island. Um, you know, it's a, it, it's a tourist resort. That island could start its own IRA simply by saying, I'm going to give you something back of what you create. And if you don't create it, I won't give you a little bit of what you created back. That's basically what the IRA is doing. It's giving a taxation subsidy on an industry that doesn't yet exist. It has to go through all the lovely benefit to countries, all the employment, all the investment, everything. And when it does start to make money, it's going to give you a tax subsidy. Well, actually, every country on this planet can do that. But one of the problems, I think, with the sort of the more emerging world, of course, is that there's sovereign risk, right? So, I mean, people want to go and set up and invest in big, ambitious green projects in the US or possibly Australia because there's a really stable rule of law, they're confident in um, policy. Uh, in, in, in emerging markets, that's a trickier proposition. So attracting the investment in the first place, even if it pays back later, is a harder thing to do. What's the solution to that? Okay, so I just want to ask you to have a look at the standard of living of North Korea and Venezuela. Um, they're smoking ruins. I mean, particularly North Korea, uh, just a smoking ruin. So if you want to turn yourself into one of those countries, just turn your back on the global community. It's going to work perfectly. You're going to have, you know, crucify your economy quick sticks. If you So that's the truth. So no country wants to turn its back on the global community. But a government might turn its back on a company. That's completely different. It might sacrifice right. a company or two where because you've got a stupid politician who wants to change the laws so he gets elected in because he's he's you know peddled some crap to the to to the voters. Um Yeah, they, you just change the tariffs one day, you know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You just impose a 50% tax at state, the 50% tax at federal, your job's done, you've just privatized the company. So you know, um, they'll do that to a company because they think they can get away with it, right? But they will not do it to the international community. They they do not want to cost the international community a lot of money, which will hit their back pocket immediately and their voters immediately, more important for them. Um, and so that we need a multilateral sovereign risk guarantee. Um, and I've raised this at APEC with the highest powers um, and people agree, governments must take responsibility for governments. You know, we can take as business, marketing risk, economic risk, financing risk, construction risk, engineering risk, everything. We can do all that risk, but what we can't take is sovereign risk. So I'm saying to the multilaterals, step up and take um, sovereign risk, I egregious tax changes, all the normal things which are really debilitating sovereign risk, which companies, responsible companies won't take on. They can take on every other risk, but they can't take on sovereign risk. That's just 
a gamble for a company, but it's not a gamble for a group of governments because they don't want to be the next Venezuela. They don't want to be the next smoking ruin North Korea. So they don't turn their back on the international community and they will obey um, the sovereign community, the global community, because they don't want to be excluded by it. And that's why we need a multilateral sovereign guarantee. Well, let's see if that's one of the big things that will come out of COP. I mean, you know, I think the expectations are high. Um, I think people really want to see progress on that front. Uh, if I just sort of pivot a little bit, I, I'd like to sort of, I'd like for you to tell me a little bit about the lessons you've learned so far on the journey of trying to green your own company. A lot of people say that, you know, it's, it's the transition journey is really hard. I mean, is there a sort of first mover disadvantage as opposed to an advantage here? Yeah, look, so there's a first mover resistance. That's where I do say um, the world's not short of technology to stop global heating. The world's not short of capital to stop global heating. The world's short of character, character of its business and industry leaders. Now, and that isn't, that's not outside of Fortescue. That's, you know, I'd say Fortescue's had its own lap of that. I mean, we did not um, keep all the executives who wanted to stick with fossil fuels. I mean, many upped and left, and you know, I, I, I warned the markets. You know, I'll be bringing in twelve new leaders, which is code for I'll be losing probably at least twelve old leaders as I transition this company away from fossil fuel because so many people won't agree, and they didn't, and they left. Um, and so I've copped huge criticism for that. But my board of directors are rock stable. I mean, media tends to forget that. Um, the board of directors said, yeah, we're going to go green. And if you don't want to stay on this bus, get off it. Um, and, you know, and a lot of people got off. So being first has had that difficulty. But I would say to every company who's saying, listen, I'd like to stop burning fossil fuels. I'd like to have a greater return for my shareholders because I'm not literally smoking their capital through burning oil and gas. Um, rather, I'm creating green energy, which we can keep for the long term, um, then I'd say, look, there's got to be bumps along the road until you've got a lot of precedents, until a lot of people are really successful and you just have to follow them. Expect the bumps along the road. But they're not technology. You know, this is what I'm saying. And they're not finance. If you want technology and if you want finance, I'm very happy to talk to you. You know, we'll share our technology. We'll tell you where to go to get finance. You know, there's heaps of capital wanting to help your company stop burning fossil fuels. Now, is it economic to, to go first? Ah, uh, yes, it is. But, you know, for the great rank and file, if you put subsidies in, or at very least stop subsidising the opposition, which is fossil fuel, you know, at very least, if you're going to do nothing, stop spending your precious taxpayers' wealth on subsidising the fossil fuel companies. That in itself will help green energy get going because right now we're fighting against our own governments. Governments don't see it like that. They all talk about going green, but don't stop me subsidising my fuel companies. You know, that's what you hear muttered after they say, we're going to go green. Well, okay, prove it. Stop subsidising the opposition to green with taxpayers' money. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, Andrew. I mean, I'm sort of struck by how at one end in the sort of public narrative, there's this sort of obvious need for leaders in the political and the business world who 
are ready to like roll their sleeves up and push for climate gr green growth effectively and at yeah. the other end of the spectrum there's people who want that but remain deeply skeptical and i think that you've you've encountered a lot of that skepticism firsthand yeah. and um you know i'm impressed you're still you're still out there you're not uh, you're not being deterred and uh you know wish you all the best because you know it's it's it, it, you know I, th I think there'll always be people out there who say you're just chasing a market but um you know if you can make a buck and also lead green growth that's that's not a bad outcome <laughs> can i just say that i'm that you know if people say oh you're just trying to make a profit well i'd say yes guilty is charged stupid if i don't make a profit i can't employ people i can't do anything it starts with making profit so yes I actually want to make a profit. Funnily that, I want to change the world because we all can pay people, we all can retain stuff, we all can have a distribution of shareholders. You can't do that unless you make a profit. Now, right now, um, it's a lot harder. So I'm simply saying, look, we're not seen as dimwits. We are by several times the higher total shareholder return company in Australia's 25-year recent history, easily. You know, um, we, we, we've we returned $35 billion of just dividends to shareholders, let alone everything else and capital growth. You know, we, we, we're we seen as being a really well-run heavy industry, which is going fully green. And meanwhile, our share price is outperforming those who are not going green. So I'm really saying to chief executives and chairmen, look at us. Our shareholding has gone up by about 300% in number. We've got great big institutions coming on board, you know, supporting us going green. And we're outperforming our competitors in a total shareholder return because we're going green. So look at us and move. And if you want a hand, talk to me. Well, that's a powerful message to end on, Andrew. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us and talk to us about the merits of green growth and i look forward to catching up with you soon you know delight to be on your show thank you for having me thanks for tuning in this podcast was produced by thomas shum in hong kong subscribe to the exchange and our sister podcast the views room on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you like to listen catch up with more of our views at breakingviews.com I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts.